Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, it has been terrific to be here this evening. Uh, Again, welcome to you all. Uh, What a special service it's been so far. I loved hearing... um, from some of those who've been baptised about why they're Christians and the difference that uh, following Jesus really makes to them. And the Bible passage that we've just had read for us on the screen there um, this evening states very clearly the difference that Jesus makes in eternity. For the last few weeks we've been looking through this section of Luke's Gospel and we just happen to have arrived here at this uh, interesting and rather difficult passage this evening. And uh, in this story we have uh, two men with two destinies, and I want it to leave us with two questions tonight. Firstly, two men. The first man, as we read the story, is phenomenally wealthy. Verse 19, do you see he's dressed in purple, the colour of royalty. His clothes are made from linen, a very expensive cloth. And end of verse 19, he lived in luxury every day, eating the finest cuisine every day. I imagine he had fresh flowers delivered to his home every day. No doubt he had a swimming pool and tennis court in the back garden, especially a tennis court in the back garden. And uh, he had his own private gym in the basement so he could enjoy leisure at any time he fancied every day. He was rich and everyone knew it. His house was fronted by huge gates. We know that because in verse 20, the word for gate there in the original describes an enormous ornamental portico. Imagine the gates of Buckingham Palace and you've got the right sort of picture in your mind. This man lived in a huge mansion. So his clothes, his food, his house, he lived like royalty. He was so rich that I guess even the falling pounds didn't bother him. And although he'd have been he'd have had, sure to have had an opinion about Brexit, the financial implications of leaving the EU wouldn't have caused him to lose any sleep. He was far too wealthy for any of that to affect him. And then there's the second man. He could not be more different. He lived in abject poverty, as extreme as the first man's opulence. Verse 20, at the rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. This poor beggar man had nothing. Every day, do you see, he was laid at the gate of the rich man, suggesting that he was crippled. And there were no fine clothes on his back, just open sores. Sores that, end of verse 21, were licked by the mangy street dogs every day. The poor man spent his life begging for scraps. So verse 21, dinner time for him was ripping open the rich man's bin liners. Materially, he had nothing. However, there is one thing that the beggar man had that the rich man didn't. Did you see it there in verse 20? It's very easy to miss. He has a name, Lazarus. And his name means he whom God helps. Uh, Here's this man then without two pennies to rub together. But he has something that is worth more than gold. He has a name named by God. He knew God and God knew him. So there are the two men, one utterly destitute, the other fabulously wealthy. And I want to ask you this evening, who would you rather be? Now please, as I ask that question, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, I imagine it's a no-brainer, but it's important to ask the, the question at this point, as we'll see in a moment. So if you had to be one of those two men, who would you rather be? Well, from two men to two destinies. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It's a remarkable story, this one. By the end of the fourth verse, 
all the main characters are dead. Yet the story doesn't end there. And that tells us something very important. You see, a parable is a literary device for telling us spiritual truths. And this parable tells us that death is not the end. Verse 23, in hell where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm agony in this fire. See what it's telling us, death is not the end. The coffin is not an exitless box. As a vicar, I often find myself in discussion with people about whether there is life after death. Well, look, this parable Jesus tells here says, yes, there is life after death, but there's a bigger question than whether there is something after death. The biggest question is, where will we spend our time after death? Because here Jesus tells us that after death there is two destinies, hell and heaven. Now that puts it all very starkly and so let me stop here for a moment. I have to say that hell is not something I find it easy to think about and it is certainly not something that I find it easy to talk about. And I imagine that I'm not alone here. I imagine that as I'm speaking of it, some of us are feeling, if not all of us, are feeling extraordinarily uncomfortable. And so it helps me to remember that these are the words of Jesus Because for me, Jesus is the most loving man who ever walked this planet. So as Jesus speaks these words, as he talks of the reality of an unimaginable place of suffering, I am sure that he does it with tenderness in his voice. And there's no question in my mind that he speaks like this as a loving warning, not wanting anyone to face a hopeless eternity. One of the uh, hardest and most heartbreaking parts of my job is to sit with people recently bereaved uh, to help them plan a funeral. And on reflection on the past 25 years of pastoral ministry, when I've conducted the funerals of hundreds of people, I have been struck that I am yet to meet anyone in that situation who doesn't want to believe that there is a heaven. Sometimes these are people who've given no thought or little thought to the possibility of heaven throughout their lives. But they really, and I understand why, they really do want to know if there's a heaven when a loved one has died. Of course they do. As I talk to people whose hearts are breaking, they love to hear parts of the Bible where Jesus speaks of heaven. Think of John chapter 14 where Jesus describes heaven as a homecoming. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, uh, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. People love those words. Of course they do. But gently this evening, I have to say there is no integrity in my belief in the reality of heaven if I don't also believe in hell because my confidence in there being a place beyond the grave called heaven, that belief only comes from the lips of Jesus. And here is Jesus himself speaking of the reality of hell and he does it in other places too. The difference is Jesus is longing for us to be in heaven. He is dying to get us there. And he only speaks of hell to warn us. Lovingly, he tells us so that we'll take steps to avoid it. And that is precisely what he's doing here. That is precisely what this whole service has been about. So notice the contrast between the destiny of these two men in eternity. 
Uh, When Lazarus, the poor beggar man, dies, verse 22, he is carried tenderly by the angels of heaven to Abraham's side. In heaven he is, verse 25, you see the word comforted. By contrast, the rich man in hell, verse 23, is in torment. And end of verse 24, he is desperate for relief from the agony he's in. And in verse 27, we see clearly that the other side of the grave, the tables have been turned for these two men. On earth, it was the poor man, Lazarus, who begged, begged for a morsel of food. Now in eternity, it is the rich man who is doing the begging. He is begging that Lazarus be allowed to go and tell his brothers of the danger they're in, so that, verse 28, they will not also come to this place of torment. These words remind me of something a friend of mine said years ago. His name is Steve. I met Steve when we both worked in the newspaper industry. Uh, We worked in a small department. We became good friends, such good friends that Steve asked me to be his best man. He also asked me to be godfather to his son. So Steve and I knew each other well. Before we met, Steve had had some involvement with a, a church when he was younger. And he would often ask me what I believed as Christian, as a Christian. It wouldn't be that I was forcing it down his neck. He wanted to know. And Steve read through one of the accounts of Jesus' life. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Luke's gospel, but one of them. And on more than one occasion, we talked about heaven and hell. And as we talked once, I still remember Steve saying these words. He said, you know, Paul, I don't mind going to hell. All my mates will be there. We'll have a blast. But that is not the experience of the rich man, do you see? He is desperate that his friends and family don't join him in hell because it is such a terrible place. Two men then, a rich man and a beggar man called Lazarus, two destinies, heaven and hell. And at this point, let me ask you the same question that I asked just a few moments ago. Who would you rather be? Now, at this point in the story, if you had to be one of the two men, who would you rather be? Now, again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, I might be wrong, but I can't believe that anyone would want to be in the shoes of the rich man now. I imagine that all of us want to be Lazarus now that he's in heaven being comforted. But my guess is we all wanted to be the rich man before. And that is precisely why this parable is so brilliant. It makes us rethink what's really important in life. It helps us to consider life from an eternal perspective. When we're rich and we're comfortable and everything's well, we can easily not think about anything beyond this life. That was the rich man. And for that reason, I think this leaves us with two questions. It might be other questions, but here are two. The first one is this, do you know God? Very simply that, this makes me ask, am I like Lazarus? Am I named and known by God? Do I know God personally? We heard it from the front. Ups put it like this, that he knew about him, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know him personally. Those were his exact words. You see, I can't think of a more important question that anyone can ask because it affects eternity. And eternity is a very long time. And you notice from this parable, in eternity there are no second chances. Verse 28, a great chasm is fixed in eternity. There's no changing sides. No second chances. And so Jesus says, please deal with this question now. That's why he tells the story. Deal with it now while you have a chance. 
Jesus says, don't be fooled into thinking that that this life is all there is. He says, don't just live for this life. And especially if life is going well for you now, if you're financially comfortable and you're enjoying a life of material ease, if you don't have in your current circumstances any problems, then it is very possible that you will be blind to the reality of death and what comes beyond the grave. You don't want to think about that because you're having a blast. By the end of the parable, I'm guessing we'd all rather be Lazarus than the rich man. But actually, by the end of the parable, we are most like not either of those men, but the men in verse 28, the rich man's brothers. See, like them, we're still this side of the grave, and we still have the chance to listen to Jesus. And look, the rich man was desperate for his brothers to be saved from eternal suffering. Verse 27. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Send Lazarus to my brothers. I'm a bit all surprised if his brothers, when he was younger, wound him up something rotten, but he loves them so much. The last thing he wants for them is to end up where he ends up. Send Lazarus to warn my brothers of the danger of hell and of eternal torment. And Abraham replied, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. You see what Abraham is saying? They have a Bible. The Gideons came into their school and gave them a New Testament when they were teachers. They have a Bible. That's all they need to know in order to avoid hell. That's what Abraham says. And the rich man's response is fascinating. It's interesting. It's amazing. Verse 31, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Some years back, uh, not in Sheffield, uh, a neighbour of ours, Bill was his name. Bill said something very similar to me. He wasn't aggressive at all. He's a lovely man. As we talked about the truth of Christianity, he said, if only I could see a miracle, then I'd believe. Something of what the rich man is saying here. If you could miraculously bring someone back from the dead, then my family would believe, he says. And you hear the irony of it? At the heart of Christianity is a miraculous rising of someone from the dead. It is about Jesus rising from the dead. And there is plenty of evidence for the resurrection. And for believing all the miracles that Jesus performed. It's all written down for us. And that's why Abraham says, look at what is written. You have everything you need in the written word. So here's the first question. Are you named and known by God? Do you know God personally, as Ups put it? If not, read the Bible and find out how you can know him personally. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for you. Just as the baptism has signified today. Being cleansed from your sin, having a fresh start, a new beginning. I've actually got copies of the Bible. One little section of it, Mark's Gospel. You could read it within a couple of hours. You don't need to do it all in one sitting. If you've never read the Bible, or if you've never read the Bible as an adult, as a thinking adult, why don't you read just this little, it's not very big. I don't have any pictures, but it's not very big. You'd be able to get through that. Isn't it worth it? I'll give you this on the way out if you, if you want one. And if you're a student and you're not sure about these things, then on a Tuesday this week, we have a Christianity Explored course beginning where we go through Mark's Gospel 
and begin to investigate whether these things are really true or not. I've got some sign-up forms for that. Uh, Grab one from me on the way out as you go. So there's the first question. Are you named and known by God? Do you know God? Does he know you? And the second question is this. What is stopping you from following Jesus Christ? See, there are all sorts of reasons why people won't follow Jesus. Sometimes it is an intellectual thing. People want answers to their questions. That is exactly why we run courses like Christianity Explored. And it's a great thing to go on. Sometimes it's a moral thing. People know that Jesus is going to expect them to change their lifestyle. That certainly happened to me when I became a Christian. It was one of the things I had to think about before I became a Christian. I knew that Jesus wouldn't like everything I was going to do. And I had to think about changing. And sometimes it is what I might call a God thing with a small g. By that I mean something else has become your God. Something else is more important to you than the one true living God. And that, I think, is what prompted Jesus to tell this parable. We are drawing to a close now, but look back to chapter 16 and verse 13. Last week we heard Jesus tell another parable, and the punchline to that other parable that he told was in verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's a very definite statement. Jesus doesn't say it's kind of hard to serve both God and money. Jesus doesn't say it's not always going to be easy to serve both God and money. He doesn't suggest that it'll take some juggling to work out how to serve both God and money. No, he says emphatically, you cannot serve both God and money. Either God will be your master, either he will rule your life, or money will. You cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible, says Jesus. And as Jesus said that, look how the Pharisees responded. But before we do, before we look at the Pharisees' response, remember who the Pharisees were. Highly religious people, respectable, clean living people. The Pharisees were people who prayed. They went to church. They knew their Bibles. They took their religion very seriously. And crucially, the Pharisees were people who took giving seriously. The Pharisees gave away a tenth of all they earned. So the Pharisees might well have been in church with us here on this Sunday evening And as Jesus said to them, you cannot serve both God and money. So, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. They loved money. So what is it he's talking about that is highly valued among men? Well, it's wealth and material comfort. It's the high life. It's the large house and the big car. It's foreign travel to exotic places, the country cottage, the fine clothes, the rich food. That's what is highly valued among men. That's what people are striving for. As students here, isn't that why you work so hard at your A-levels? Wanted to get a good, good enough grade so you're able to come to Sheffield? You chose well. You came to Sheffield to get a good degree in order to get a good career that pays well to give you everything you ever wanted. I'm not saying that's the only thing that motivates you. I know many of you. I know you have good desires and fine ideals. But is it true to say that most of us want a comfortable existence enjoying the finer things of life? I think that's true. 
That's why when we read the first few verses of this story, we want to be like the rich man. We want a life of comfort and ease. Of course we do. First class travel, good food, classy wine, money in the bank. We want to live like the rich man living in luxury every day. But just listen to what we're saying when we say that. The rich man was thoroughly selfish and heartless. He was a man who paid no attention to the poor man. The poor man Lazarus who was dumped at his gate day after day. This rich man wasn't moved by the plight of a homeless man who needed a good meal and medical attention. He didn't care for the man who lived off the scraps in his wheelie bin and didn't have any clothes on his back while he, the rich man, lived in luxury every day. I put like that, I imagine we're all saying, no, I I, I want to be comfortable. Of course, I'm concerned for the poor. Jesus is saying, beware of the power and pull of money. If money gets a grip of our hearts, it will control us and we will serve it. And it is impossible to serve two masters. And please know that money is a terrible master. Money never leaves you satisfied. No matter how much you have, you'll always want more. I forget who it was that said it, uh, but a multi-millionaire was asked, how much money do you need to make you happy? And he replied, £100,000 more than you have. You see, you're never happy. You always want some more. It is remarkably difficult to give money away. Have you noticed that? Money can so easily become so important to us that we, we won't live as we should. Money can make anyone heartless towards the plight of the needy. We might well have enough, but we don't give it. Money makes us turn a blind eye to the needs of others while continuing to feather our own nest. Does it not do that? Does it in my life? And here's the thing then. Money rules us and dominates our thinking so that we won't think about eternity in our relationship with God. And that's why Jesus said, end of verse 15, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight because it ruins you for eternity. Valuing wealth and money and luxury is a recipe for disaster because it blinds us to the realities of life beyond the grave. That's why Jesus told this parable. The most loving man who ever lived spoke in the most stark and graphic way that he could to help us see what we should really value most highly. As we look at these two men with two destinies, Jesus says, have a long-term investment in view. Look at things from eternity. Don't let money or anything else other than Jesus become your God because it will rob you of eternity. And so as we close tonight, rather than want to be a rich man, and rather than look at this rich man, look at another rich man. A rich man who had more wealth than anyone ever had. A rich man who was clothed in splendour and majesty. The rich man I'm talking about is the Lord Jesus himself. He was rich in heaven, yet for our sakes he became poor. He exchanged a throne in heaven for a feeding trough. He gave up sapphire-paved courts for a stable floor. In heaven he was highly exalted above all others, yet he stooped so low that he was mocked by ordinary people in the street. He showed us how to use riches. He put his riches aside for our sake. 
He lived a life of poverty for our sake. He died for our sake that we might be forgiven, as we've been seeing in this baptism service today, that we might be forgiven for failing to live for him. That is how much he loves us. And when you remember the cross of the Lord Jesus, then you know that whatever he said here, even if it seems hard, he said it because he loves you. He who was rich became poor for our sake, that we might become rich with eternity ahead of us. Two men, two destinies, leading us with two questions but really all pointing us to just one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in your great kindness you speak to us sometimes very directly. We thank you that you love us enough to tell it as it is. We thank you that as we hear these words of the Lord Jesus, we know that they were said out of love. For the one who said these words is the one who would go to the cross to die for us, to win eternity for us. And so we do pray for every one of us here. We thank you very much for those baptised, but for all of us that we would think seriously about eternity, that we would not let anything else get in the way, that we would, even tonight, turn to the Lord Jesus, knowing that he and he alone can win us eternity. And we ask it in his name. Amen.